adrenal fatigue is definitely controversial, but there are a lot of behaviors that do drive HPA axis dysregulation that unfortunately are very common in the, uh, the health and wellness community. I'm Nina. And I'm Liz. We don't have all the answers, but we do have a bottle of wine and some thoughts. If you're looking for honest musings on life, happiness, health, and wellness, you've come to the right place. We'll even throw in a couple off-the-wall jokes, some personal stories, and of course, some shenanigans. So grab a glass of wine and join the conversation. Hey, Wine and Shiners. We are back with yet another episode of the podcast, and we are talking about Nina's favorite topic today, hormones and gut health and stress and And adrenals and everything. um, We are talking with Laura Schoenfeld and she is an RD and has a really great blog and resource there. Check her out on her Instagram, check her out on her blog. We'll put all those resources in the show notes for you. But what didn't we talk about? I mean, basically, if you want, if you feel like stress is negatively impacting your digestion or your life in general, I feel like this is the episode for you. Yes. I think she gave so many practical tools. I mean, she basically did a coaching session with Liz at the end. I was going to say, I was like, I feel like I need to pay her right now. That was so great. (laughs) Guys, if you, yeah, if you are struggling with stress or, you know, anything related to overwhelm, this is the episode for you. And she is extremely helpful. Her blog, she'll quote it at the end. She'll give you all the details. So enjoy. Listen to this episode with like a nice candle, relax, get yourself in the stress reduction mood and be prepared to get lots of knowledge. Hey, Wine and Shiners, we are back with a new episode with Laura Schoenfeld and we cannot wait to dive into adrenal health today. It's a topic we haven't discussed much of. I feel like we've touched on it here and there, but we haven't really gotten into the nitty gritty and it's something I'm personally very passionate about. Um, In addition to gut health, I did an adrenal and gut workshop and I listened to your podcast on the Paleo Women podcast and I learned a ton of things. Like I took notes from that podcast for my workshop. And I was like, oh, I need to get her on our show. So if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself a little bit and telling our audience what you do, a little bit of your background before we jump into questions. Yeah, sure. So hi, everybody. My name is Laura, and I'm a registered dietitian uh, with a master's in public health. And I would say my major focus with my business is helping women who are generally active and health conscious optimize their diet and exercise routine for good health and hormone function and digestive function. Most of the issues I tend to work with are hormonal or digestive in nature, I also tend to focus on body image and orthorexia, which is like a not a, a true eating disorder, but it can become an eating disorder when people are overly overly concerned with the purity or the cleanliness mm-hmm. of their food, that kind of thing. And uh, a lot of the women that I work with, they develop health issues because they're trying to be healthy, which is kind of unfortunate, but it is something I tend to work with women who really do care about their health and really want to be healthy, but have gotten so much noise from reading too many blogs or listening. And I, I love podcasts, but you know, sometimes if you're listening to too many podcasts, yep. it depends on who you're listening to. You can get a lot of different information. Mm-hmm. Pretty much anything that you learn about nutrition, you could probably find someone who's saying that that information is wrong. So right. as you can imagine, information overload leads to a lot of confusion and maybe yeah. choices that aren't necessarily aligned with the person's health, but more just, oh, well, such and such podcast that I should do this. So 
I'm going to do it even if I feel like garbage when mm-hmm. I'm when I'm eating or exercising that way. So I tend to help a lot of women with recovering from dietary restrictions, things like too low carb or you know maybe they did like an autoimmune diet or a low FODMAP diet for digestion and they just got stuck on the excessive restricted diet. And so I help them get off of restrictions that aren't helpful. I help make sure that they're eating enough, help make sure that they're actually treating the health issues. So if they have a GI issue that, yeah, the FODMAP diet was helpful, but it wasn't actually solving the underlying root cause of the gut issue. I really help them to get to the root cause of their health issues and make sure that the diet is not something that's either triggering the problem or making it worse because it's overly restricted, not enough calories, you know, causing disordered thinking around food. And also making sure women are fueling their exercise appropriately. Since I, I was an athlete in college and I, I'm kind of like a recreational powerlifter right now. And so I definitely appreciate the role of food as fuel as well as the cultural and social aspects of food. So that's kind of like the very small nutshell version of mm-hmm. who I am and what I do. But I'm just really passionate about helping women really eat in a way that is nourishing and not afraid to eat more food, not afraid to eat foods that aren't quote unquote like ideal healthy, you know, kale and and coconut oil, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And just giving women the freedom to eat in a way that does support their health, but also allows them to live a, a normal life. I love that. So tell us a little bit about your story. I mean, obviously with your background in public health and your, you know, like you said, a dietitian or nutritionist? Uh, Technically it's a registered dietitian, but we're also called nutritionists. We're trying to fit in with the cool people. Okay, I was like, I feel like I've heard these used kind of interchangeably. Tell us about what led you to that work, like your story and kind of what got you interested in these specific topics that you work with women on. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in a household where my mom was actually pretty into nutrition from a young age from our perspective. She actually started the process of becoming a registered dietitian when I was like, I want to say I was maybe between the ages of like 12 and 16 or something. I don't remember exactly what her timeline was, but but she switched this over to something called a Weston Price style diet when I was about 12. I remember coming home from school and opening the fridge and seeing this milk that looked like it was like rotten and mm-hmm. like disgusting and had all the fat on the top and we were like, what is this? And it was raw milk, actually. Mm. So um, that was our first foray into the the alternative nutrition world. And then over time, it was just kind of normal in our house to be eating things like, you know, putting butter on things, eating sourdough bread and uh, grass-fed meats and kind of like just a real food diet, nothing as far as like gluten-free or, or paleo or anything like that, but just real food, not being afraid of fat, eating animals, plants, you know, kind of a mixed omnivorous diet. And then when I got to college, I was an athlete in high school. I played volleyball primarily, and then I did play some volleyball in college. And I, going from the high school level of fitness to the collegiate like D3 athlete level of fitness, I lost a lot of weight, not on purpose. And I was eating a, a, a lot of food. I was eating at the uh, All You Can Eat cafeteria. So it wasn't <laughs> I like remember a, it. Inadequate... I remember it well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, it was just a lot of training involved. So I ended up losing like 30 pounds freshman year. And I was like a little solid sheet of muscle essentially. And that experience kind of tipped me over into a little bit of body image issues, not in the sense that I was trying to be anorexic or anything like that. But I was getting a lot of attention for 
the change that my body went through after being on the college volleyball team. And I started to associate, oh, being lean and looking like this is getting me more attention. Mm. I got more attention from um, boys. I was more of a wallflower in high school. So it just started this journey of being more focused on fitness and my appearance and reading women's health magazines and just like, you know, being at the gym all the time, even after I, I got cut off the volleyball team in sophomore year, but then I just kept going to the gym. Uh, I'd spend like, you know, five, six days in the gym, not doing anything crazy or dangerous, but it was like a little bit into that realm of, okay, I'm doing this because I'm associating my physique with my self-worth. Yeah. Even though I was eating enough, I wasn't like, you know, starving myself or doing anything harmful. I didn't develop any serious health issues. But over time, it did develop into a passion as far as talking about nutrition and food. I did a, a study abroad and a year post-college in Australia. And Australia is a really... Um, they're very into nutrition and fitness and outdoors. And they're they're just like... You know, you can imagine living on a beach, everyone is into health and fitness. Yeah, right. But I was getting more passionate there. I got more exposed to things like the paleo diet when I was in Australia. And then while I was there, I realized that I was interested in nutrition enough to pursue a graduate degree in nutrition. So when I was there, I applied to grad school. Or I should say, I started the process of getting into grad school with like the prerequisites, that kind of thing. And then applied to grad school, ended up going to UNC Chapel Hill in North Carolina for my master's in public health and the registered dietitian concurrent program, which is a little bit different than what a lot of RDs do. A lot of RDs do their undergrad for dietetics. So I did the master's program, did the dietetic internship, went through the whole program. When I finished my program, I went straight into private practice and just started taking clients one-on-one. While I was in grad school, I also worked for a guy named Chris Cresser and I still work for him, but I was working a lot more closely with him in grad school and a little bit after grad school as well. And he was big in the paleo world and I just got exposed to a lot of information that way. So once I started my private practice, I started to see a lot of issues coming up with people that were related to this overtraining, under-eating, over-obsession with trying to be perfect with their diet. I was kind of into the low-carb thing at that point, but I wasn't like keto or anything Mm -hmm. super low-carb like that. But I was noticing that I wasn't necessarily feeling my best on low-carb. And then also a lot of the people I was working with weren't feeling their best low-carb. So I started to expand my diet out to include more carbs and just went through this whole process of healing my own hormonal issues. I had some adrenal-induced PCOS-type symptoms. I had hormonal imbalances that I'm pretty confident came from the stress of the low-carb diet with high-intensity training. And it's just been a journey over the last... What has it been? Like I think four years since I started my private practice that I really started to refine my perspective about food and especially for women's health because I do feel like women have a much different um, biological design than men do. And just getting a lot more passionate about making sure that women are aware of the difference between them and men are aware that they can't necessarily be, you know, doing five days a week of CrossFit and doing a keto diet and all that and not see problems with their hormonal health. And then just my training with functional medicine through Chris Presser and just self-study, that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. just expanded my my interest into the world of functional gut disorders and things like PCOS, hypothalamic amenorrhea, those those uh, hormonal issues. Um, and the adrenal fatigue piece, that, that's been an interesting uh, topic of interest for me just because there's so much controversy around 
the term adrenal fatigue and whether or not it's even a real condition. HPA um, axis dysfunction. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so we, uh, we call it HPA axis dysfunction. The the typical, like if you're going to Google it, most people will Google the term adrenal fatigue. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of evidence that adrenal dysfunction can show up in cortisol dysregulation, in sex hormone dysregulation, thyroid function issues. So I still believe that stress and malnutrition and overtraining and all that stuff does significantly impact adrenal function and HPA axis communication. But I think the term adrenal fatigue can be confusing to Mm -hmm. people. So I'm passionate about educating people about that topic and helping them understand that adrenal fatigue is definitely controversial, but there are a lot of behaviors that do drive HPA axis dysregulation that unfortunately are very common in the, uh, the health and wellness community. So it's like basically when you're stressing out your body from all angles, that's when you start to see, I don't know if you want to say adrenal issues arise or if you want to say like the HPA communication system malfunctioning or can you explain a little bit about what all of this means for our listeners that might be like, what? What are, yeah, what are they talking about? What are sure adrenals? People that are like, ah, oh, these words don't mean anything to me. So basically the adrenal glands are little glands that sit on top of your kidneys that are primarily involved in stress hormone production. They also do things with uh, blood sugar control, blood pressure control, um, but they're the main stress uh, management tool that your body has. Like when you think cortisol and adrenaline, right? Mm -hmm. You think Mm -hmm. that's output by the adrenals. Yes. So the adrenal glands produce those hormones in response to stress. And it's not necessarily always bad stress. Like there are good stressors in our lives, like you know, going on a first date or doing something like having a baby, like these are good stressors, but your body's going to respond with stress hormones mm-hmm. in response to that. Um, basically, cortisol is something called a glucocorticoid. And what that infers is that it actually will affect glucose release in the bloodstream. So that's how cortisol actually helps regulate blood sugar. Wait, can I um, ask a question? Just pausing. So (laughs) she was like, no, (laughs) you are not allowed to ask questions on your podcast. So I noticed that caffeine, back when I started to realize I was having a lot of issues, caffeine would make me really lightheaded and then I would feel really sick or like my blood sugar would drop. And I think that's why, right? Because caffeine boosts your cortisol and then that affects your blood sugar. And so that can make you feel sort of sick and woozy and off balance. Is that correct? Yeah. So Caffeine definitely affects both cortisol and adrenaline release. And if you, I would say it has probably more to do with the adrenaline release that Mm. you get from caffeine. Um, Adrenaline is a hormone that if you think about what normally triggers adrenaline, normally it would be like a fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. So you get, you know, you're hiking in the woods and you see a bear and that's, oh my gosh, got to get out of here. Adrenaline just like surges in your system. Adrenaline is something that's going to, immediately change your physiology to help you produce more glucose to make it easier to to fight or flee. It raises your heart rate. It raises your blood pressure. It does a lot of things that prepare your body for the fight or flight. But if you're just sitting there drinking coffee at your desk and you're getting an adrenaline surge, all of those physiological changes are not appropriate. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of times where you get that blood sugar dysregulation after having caffeine. So it's one of these things where 
it blood sugar is very tightly involved with the adrenal system. It's actually one of the main there's like four different types of stressors that affect the adrenal and HPA axis and blood sugar dysregulation is one of those main four. So if you have any issues with blood sugar, caffeine unfortunately can trigger either a surge of blood sugar that then you have that spike and drop, or it can just cause elevated blood sugar for some people. So definitely related to caffeine use and how it affects the adrenal glands. How do you know if you're having blood sugar issues? So for blood sugar issues, it's you can test. So that's the easiest way to know if your blood sugar is out of whack. But as far as hypoglycemia goes, which is probably what you were experiencing, a lot of times you'll start to have headaches. You'll mm-hmm. have sweats, like you either get sweaty in your face or in your armpits. Some people will start to shake or get like heart palpitations. People will get dizzy or lightheaded. Yeah. Um, I know me personally, if my blood sugar starts to get low, I'll get really cold. So I'll just start to feel like I'm shivering and my body temperature is having a hard time regulating. So that's another symptom of low blood sugar. Getting hungry or hangry would be a sign Mm -hmm. that your blood sugar is dropping. Just any sort of cognitive changes, brain fog, mood changes. Oh gosh, that was like the worst. Yeah. Yeah. So blood sugar changes are going to affect everyone differently, but they're very common and a lot of times... It's, there's so many different things that can affect blood sugar, but blood sugar dysregulation is a huge trigger for a lot of different health issues. I have a question about... I know we interrupted the first question. Like we've segued from the it's first question. It's because that's how we do. I know. That's what we do. I know. And I just like, I keep getting more questions that I want. It's almost like I want you to clarify what I know in my head. I'll be like, am I right? And then I keep <laughs> wanting to like interject. Well, do so, you want me to jump back into dis- just describing the whole HPA axis system? Yes, let's people? do that. Yep. Jot down your question, Liz, if you it's want to It's already remember. in my head. Okay. I just want to make sure because you guys, I'm sure already know a lot of this stuff, but if your listeners don't, they're going to be like, what are we talking about? So um, so basically the adrenal glands, like we were saying, control your blood sugar. They control stress hormone output. They do control blood pressure as well. So if your blood sugar or if your blood pressure starts to get out of range, you'll produce hormones that'll affect vasodilation, different hormones that actually change your blood pressure. So uh, it also affects water and salt balance, which is another way to change your blood pressure. So um, that's why a lot of times people will have salt and different mineral issues if they have adrenal dysfunction. But basically what will happen is if you're under stress in a way that's not natural for the body. So stress is normal. It's not It's not actually good to be 100% stress protected. Our bodies actually are designed to experience acute stress and then respond to that acute stress weightlifting is a great example of a stressor that it's acute, it happens in a short period of time, and then your body actually uses that stress to grow stronger. So we don't want zero stress. But the kind of stress that's a problem for our bodies is more chronic, low-grade stress, kind of like daily stress, traffic, bad relationship issues, money problem, self negative self-talk, body image issues, that kind of thing. So it's that low-grade, never really resolving That stress. everybody has. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> that we, I looked at you and then I was like, and then also my entire big body breakdown was because I was ignoring all of that. Right. So it's that kind of like not super obvious stressor. I mean, if you have a traumatic event or PTSD, that can immediately change how your adrenal and HPA axis actually communicates. But most people that are experiencing these adrenal fatigue type symptoms, 
they're going to be having the low-grade stress that builds over time. And so essentially what happens is initially your, your adrenals are going to produce more cortisol to deal with the stress. But then over time, because cortisol is actually a, a hormone that if it's chronically elevated can damage your brain, your body doesn't want to be having chronically high cortisol all the time. So your brain will start to tell your adrenals to stop producing so much cortisol. So a lot of people think of adrenal fatigue as, oh, your adrenals just get tired and they can't produce cortisol anymore. That is not accurate at all. That's why the doctors are like, you're lying. That's not a thing. (laughs) Right. So that doesn't happen unless somebody has Addison's disease, which is an autoimmune destruction of the adrenal tissue. And that's completely different than what we're talking about. Basically, all of this is a brain issue. Your adrenals are totally fine. They can produce cortisol in response to what the brain's telling it to produce. But the brain is sensing that this is a problem. We need to reduce cortisol and it just starts to slow slow down production or it starts to change production in a way that's not appropriate. And that's when people start to experience the symptoms of cortisol dysregulation. They have you know, fatigue, they have insomnia, they have weight gain, they have um, thyroid issues because your thyroid is interacting with your, your adrenals. Um, women will get, a lot of times I was mentioning adrenal PCOS, so they'll get sex hormone changes because of the That's adrenal That's what happened issue. to me. Yeah. So a lot of times like low progesterone or elevated totally. androgens, that And then of- that causes a whole nother host of problems, which is why I'm so passionate about this because I feel like everyone thinks, oh, like my thyroid's off or, oh, I'm having period issues. But it, it all like stems back to what we're talking about right now. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. But it's like, there's so many symptoms because they all tie into different things. Right. And everyone's going to experience the symptoms differently. And certainly men or women are going to experience it differently. And then there's also what's causing the stress that's going to affect how you respond. So I was talking before about the four major triggers of HPA axis dysregulation. I'd mentioned blood sugar control issues as being one of the major ones. Emotional, mental stress is kind of an obvious one. So we were talking about like, you know, you're in a bad relationship or you have a job that you hate or you're driving in traffic an hour each way to work. So that's one of the four is just that mental, emotional stress. Circadian rhythm dysregulation, which is the 24-hour clock that your body is attuned to with the light and dark cycles of the sun and, you know, the sun's up, the sun's down in a 24-hour period. If those are off, that can affect your adrenal function because the main trigger for your spike in cortisol in the morning is actually sun exposure or sunlight in your eyes essentially is that first trigger for that that cortisol response to wake you up in the morning. Um, And then the last one would be inflammation. So if you're eating foods that are inflammatory, if you have an autoimmune condition that is causing a lot of inflammation, if you have gut permeability, a gut infection, that can cause inflammation. So anything in the body that's triggering inflammation can affect adrenal function because cortisol is one of our main anti-inflammatory hormones as well. As you, I don't know if you guys have ever used like a topical cortisone or people that get prednisone as a, if they have an injury, they'll get a prednisone shot to, to help with the inflammation. All of that is like a cortisol analog that actually reduces inflammation. So if you have a lot of inflammation going on, your body's going to be producing a lot of cortisol to deal with it. And then eventually you get the same problem as if you were just dealing with a stressful job for a long period of time. So just to review, the four triggers of adrenal dysfunction would be mental and emotional stress, blood sugar dysregulation, circadian rhythm dysfunction, and inflammation. Can you be dealing with all four stages at the same time? <laughs> Asking you mean for all four, a all four factors? <laughs> all four factors, yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, 
you know, just to give an example, I, I work with a lot of different clients and I'll just do like a composite of different clients that I've worked with, but maybe they have Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune thyroid issue. So they already have some inflammation there. Maybe they have some gut issues going on, like a gut infection or they're eating like they're eating gluten and that's causing gut permeability. So they have the inflammation piece. Mm -hmm. Maybe they have some body image issues. A lot of people that have hypothyroidism are trying to lose weight because Mm -hmm. hypothyroidism can cause weight gain. So maybe they're dieting really hard, under eating, eating a low carb diet, and then they're doing exercise. Like, you know, let's say they're doing CrossFit five days a week to try to lose weight. So that's a stressor on the body. Doing low carb and CrossFit, you're kind of forcing yourself into a hypoglycemic state because you're burning all this glucose for fuel, but you're not uh, replacing it with your food. So then your body has to use stress hormones to actually um, create Mm. new glucose through a process called gluconeogenesis. So that's a blood sugar issue. And then let's say this girl is also likes to use social media at night on her phone before she goes to bed. So she's (laughs) she's laying in bed at midnight, scrolling through Instagram, getting a ton of blue light into her eyes and really just telling her body that it's daylight at you know midnight. So that that covers all four issues. Yeah. And honestly, that's not that unusual. Of that's a, what I was going to say. Yeah, like I totally had all four. Like I 100% <laughs> had all four. Right. Or if, even if you just have like IBS or something, the gut yeah. issues can really trigger a lot of inflammation too. And gut issues can be an emotional stressor because I'm sure anyone- That was my ever... next question. Yeah. Actually, is, because I'm so passionate about both topics. I always wonder- is it the HPA axis dysfunction that's causing the gut issues or is it the gut issues that are causing the HPA axis dysfunction? Mm-hmm. Or is it So it's both? kind of, it's a chicken or the egg scenario yeah. really because there are some people who develop gut issues because of stress. So as an example, stress actually reduces stomach acid production mm-hmm. for a lot of people. And when your stomach acid gets low, one, you don't digest as well because you don't get first of all, the initial digestion in your stomach with the stomach acid. That change in acid is really what's supposed to trigger a pancreatic response to food once the food gets from your stomach into the small intestine. So if your acid isn't high enough, you're not actually stimulating the pancreas very well. So then a lot of the food gets into your gut kind of improperly digested. And then bacteria in your gut feed off of that undigested food that can trigger pathogenic overgrowth. It can trigger something called SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And then that's when you get microbiome changes in your gut that are not healthy and cause a lot of the IBS type symptoms, things like bloating, gas, loose stools, constipation, that kind of thing. So stress can be a trigger for gut changes for sure. On the other hand, a lot of people will develop gut issues for whatever reason. Maybe they had to take antibiotics as a kid. Maybe they went on a trip and they got a parasite or a, a gut infection from contaminated water. Something happens that changes their gut flora in a negative way. And again, most of us have been on antibiotics. I feel like it's yeah. rare for someone to not have been taken antibiotics at some point mm-hmm. in their life. Um, so that shift in the gut flora can then trigger inflammation in the gut like if you're not digesting things very well, you're not maybe getting all the the nutrients out of the food that you're eating. So there's a malnutrition state that happens from gut issues. A lot of my clients develop disordered eating and under eating because their gut doesn't feel good when they eat. So they end up just skipping food because it's like, well, I'm not going to eat if it makes me feel sick. And then they're not eating hardly anything. So that's kind of like a gut first developing into HPA axis dysregulation. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, it's kind of a, 
it's a back and forth communication thing because the brain and the gut are very tightly connected. Anything can kind of go wrong in either direction. And then the the issue will start to trigger the opposite, well, not the opposite, but the complementary problem essentially. Yeah. So, you know, the gut gets worse, then your adrenal axis gets worse, and then the stress triggers more gut problems. And it can be a bit of a vicious cycle in that situation. I feel like I don't even know how you undo all Me that story. Like, I don't even know. What we started doing, Liz, was how is the start to it? Like what we started doing or what I started doing with you. Mm-hmm. But that brings me, so- Okay. I had a question. You never let me ask. Go ask it because I have like a thousand more. (laughs) Okay. So I'm going to get selfish. Um, How do you know if your weight gain is stress-induced or induced by something else? Can you tell? Well, I would say the main thing you'd want to look at is first look at what you're eating. You know, if you're eating healthy foods, you're not under eating and you're not overeating. I I usually would suggest doing a couple days worth of tracking just to see what your typical calorie intake is. And if it's pretty good as far as the range is concerned, not too, too low, not too high. I would say that it's probably not an overeating or undereating issue. Stress, stress is tough because it does slow your metabolic rate down putting on weight is actually a defense mechanism that your body has because in our body's perspective, stress would be, oh, there's a famine or there's a war going on or there's food shortage, that kind of thing. It's not, oh, I have to get up at 5 a.m. for my job that I hate every day, you know? Mm -hmm. So your body looks at at fat storage as being actually, that's protecting you from something bad happening. And that's usually in the midsection or can it be anywhere? I'd say... I mean, it can be anywhere, but if you're noticing it's more belly fat, then a lot of times that can be stress-induced. I was mentioning before how stress can actually impair thyroid activity. So you could have some mild hypothyroidism that's triggered by stress or you know, there's lots of other things like autoimmunity, inflammation, that kind of thing that can affect the thyroid hormone production. Also malnutrition. So any micronutrient deficiencies can potentially impair thyroid health. So you could be eating a good amount of calories, but if you're not getting enough of certain micronutrients, you could get thyroid slowdown and then your metabolic rate slows. Trying to think of other things that, I mean, so if you're under eating and over exercising, that's a huge stressor on your body. And I I see a lot of women actually paradoxically gaining weight when they're dieting because of that. And so if you have a history of chronic dieting, that can actually lead to weight gain over the long run, even if it caused weight loss in the beginning, because it's a huge stressor on your body to be in a chronic calorie deficit. When you say um, under eating, are mm-hmm. you assuming like they are, they're not eating till they're full, like they're restricting their calories? So appetite is not, it's not always the best signal of adequate food intake. And the reason for that is because there's a lot of different, a lot of different environmental factors that'll affect how much we eat, especially for Mm. women. I find that women tend to be in this issue a lot more frequently where you're growing up and you see what your friends are eating at the cafeteria at school or in college. And even though you might be hungry for a lot of food, if you see all your friends are eating like, you know, a little tiny salad and that's all they're eating that's enough to change your behavior to say, oh, that's what a girl should be eating. Mm. I'm eating too much. Let me reduce how much I'm eating. And then eventually that chronic low intake of food will suppress your appetite. So it's 
notorious that people with things like anorexia, and I'm not saying people that are restricting their food automatically have anorexia, but in anorexia, appetite tends to get very suppressed. So they're not even hungry, even if they're eating 500 calories a day. So if you have any sort of environmental influence, or if like, let's say, you know, you're 14 and a boy calls you fat, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I need to stop eating as much because this boy said I'm fat that change eventually can lead to a situation where your appetite signaling is no longer accurate. So even if you think you're eating to appetite, sometimes the appetite piece is not really the best tool for knowing that you're eating enough to support your needs. So there can be a little bit of a recovery process for people who have a history of chronic dieting to actually recover their, their normal appetite. Also, people who have gut issues like If they have IBS and they're constipated all the time, that really impairs appetite as well. Anyone who's ever been constipated probably knows that they're not usually very hungry when they're feeling constipated. So that can lead to under eating, even accidentally, if they're not purposefully restricting food, they just don't feel like they need to eat. Over time, that can cause problems as well. So the other thing that can cause under eating is if you're eating a very low calorie density diet, something like a paleo, like a low-carb paleo diet. On one hand, it can be helpful for people who struggle with overeating because low-calorie density means that they can eat a lot of volume and not get as many calories. But the issue I see with a lot of my clients is that they eat a large plate of food, but let's say 80% of it is like cauliflower and kale, and then they have like a, a skinless chicken breast or they have like a lean piece of fish or something with that. They didn't have any carbs and they didn't put a lot of fat onto the plate that meal might only be like 400 calories, even if it's a huge plate of food. So if you're eating a a restricted diet, a lot of times that affects how many calories you're getting because you're eating low calorie density, high satiety foods, and you end up getting way more full on that kind of stuff than if you were eating starches or fats. And um, that can definitely lead to an inadequate calorie intake, even accidentally. So those are just some examples of reasons why people might not be eating enough. But I find women oftentimes are very surprised to see that what they're eating compared to what their estimated needs are is like way, way different. I struggle with the intuitive eating side of things. And then also when it's time to, I don't want to say restrict or like count numbers, but in this case, it's like, okay, maybe it is helpful for you to sort of count what you're eating. So that way you can get out of under eating. Or if you have a gut issue, like maybe you should restrict these items. No, restrict's not the word, but like eliminate or I don't know what the word is. These items for a while until you heal. How do you balance between like intuitive eating, but then also sometimes you need to have a more structured diet or maybe Mm -hmm. count? Yeah. I mean, the way I think about calorie counting is It's only intended to be Mm short-term and it's only intended to give us objective data about what somebody's food intake is. I think that when calorie counting starts to become disordered is two things. One, if it's purposefully to reduce calorie intake and to keep it low. So if you think about most people that are calorie counting, they're like, oh, I need to stay under 1,200 calories a day. Like that's not what I They have their like my fitness pal app. (laughs) Yeah. And then the other thing that can be disordered about calorie counting is not ever getting away from it and never mm. thinking that you can like trust your body to to self-regulate when it comes to your appetite. Because some people will start to do calorie counting or macro tracking or something like that. And they just have like no confidence that they can not do that and still eat in a normal way. So 
I would say that's more of the disordered type of tracking that can definitely be very common. And I totally understand why people are like, don't calorie count, that kind of thing. Because we think about calorie counting as like a way to restrict. Whereas when I work with clients, if we're doing any sort of tracking, it's more to just look at it objectively (laughs) and say, okay, what are you eating? Is this enough calories? Um, Is it accidentally, maybe you're eating 1,400 a day and you really need 2,400 based on how How active you are. How do you know what's enough? So it is a little bit, it's nuanced. When I'm working with someone on figuring out what enough calories is for them, we start with a general estimate. There are some calculations that have been just tested in research to be pretty accurate. They're not 100% accurate. So I would never say, oh, this number is exactly what your cal- or your body's burning. Different things can affect metabolic output, like hypothyroidism will slow somebody's um, metabolic rate so they won't burn as much energy. Um, Also, if you have a lot of muscle mass, you tend to burn more energy than someone who doesn't have as much muscle. So a lot of things can affect that number. But I like to start with that number as a baseline to say, okay, that's an estimated need. And let's compare what you're currently doing to that estimate. Mm. So like for me, depending on how active I am, I would say my needs range from like 2,000 to 2,500 in a day. 2,000 might be closer to a day that I don't exercise or maybe I just did a little short walk with my dog that day, but was sitting most of the day. Maybe 2,500 is a day that I did a heavyweight training session and also walked my dog longer. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty wide range, but it is something that if I was eating, like let's say the minimum was 2,000 and I was eating 1,400 for the day, that's clearly not enough. And that's not enough to support even my, my basal metabolic rate, let alone activity levels. So when I look at it, I'm saying, okay, we know there's some wiggle room. If you're, let's say your estimated knees are 2000 and you're tracking and you get like 1900 and you're not hungry to eat more, I would say, okay, you're probably close enough. Nobody's perfect in tracking. So maybe you're underestimating a little and you're actually getting closer to what your estimated Mm -hmm. needs are. Um, But if I see someone more than like three or 400 calories away from what their estimated needs are. First of all, I want to make sure that they're tracking accurately because again, there's a lot of specifics about tracking to be more accurate and you can't just make guesses about how much the food weighs or how much you've eaten. But if it's a huge discrepancy like that, then we want to start working up to a higher food amount. And I typically... I don't do calorie tracking with all my clients. And if I do, I try to keep it to just a couple days just to check in Mm -hmm. as an objective measurement. And then once we know that that's not what the person's getting or we think that under eating is causing problems, I usually put a, a template together as far as like, okay, here's, you know, four ounces of meat, a cup of starch, a cup of uh, some kind of non-starchy veggies and a tablespoon of some kind of oil or fat added to that meal. That's about how much would get you to your basic calorie needs if you eat three meals like that a day. Obviously, it's going to fluctuate if somebody eats different types of proteins, uses different types of fats, but overall, it just gives them enough structure to aim for an enough, um, an adequate calorie intake without it being like, oh my gosh, you have to track every single thing that you put in your mouth. That's generally what my approach is, but I always think about tracking as being a tool. Um, There's nothing inherently disordered about tracking your food. It has more to do with what's the purpose and also what's the mindset. So if you, if tracking makes you feel like disordered or feel crazy or like just whatever kind of emotional response you're having, then I don't suggest doing it. But if you can do it objectively and just look at the data and say, oh, wow, I only ate 1500 calories today. That's not what I'm supposed to be getting. I need more like 
2000. Like a tool that's helpful. And like once it becomes not helpful, then there might be a different route to go. Right. And I always recommend if somebody's having issues to definitely work with somebody because it's really hard to be objective if you have any sort of history of eating disorder or body image issues where you know, you want to lose weight and you're afraid to go over 1200 calories a day because that's what Women's Health Magazine said you should eat to lose weight. And so I wouldn't suggest doing this stuff by yourself. But if you are just curious if this is something that's an issue for you, then tracking can be a really helpful way to check in on that. Cool. Liz, I felt like you had a question earlier. You went... Oh, I'm just being very, very selfish in my questions because no, I, that's seriously. No, I, I have so many selfish ones in my mind. Well, too. because I do. You think I've gained weight from stress? Don't Wait, lie. Are you asking me? Yeah, I'm asking Liz. I'm not answering that question on the podcast. No, I, I think that you. I think that you are stressed. That you. I, I think that a lot of listeners too are in the same boat where they're stressed. They're trying to eat really healthy. They do a good job with their eating, and then they also just feel stuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I—that's what's frustrating for me—is that like, I—I I think the first thing people jump to is like, "Well, cut out the soda." I never drink pop. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't drink it. I don't like go home every night and eat burgers and fries. I don't go to like McDonald's. Like, I know that's what people. When you're like, I've gained weight. That's what people think you're doing, which is right. really frustrating. I'm like, today I had like avocado tuna salad with chickpeas and mm-hmm. Mary's gone crackers. Like, I'm not eating. <laughs> I've eaten everything on Nina's. List. I have. I'm not eating like sh- strawberry shortcake for lunch. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So I'm just. Well, I'm and frustrated personally. <laughs> yeah, I definitely empathize. I went through a period of time where I'd put on probably I was about 20 pounds heavier than I am now. It was kind of like right after grad school, starting my own business, was in a car accident. So I couldn't oh exercise God. for like three months. And I just got to a place where I was like really not very feeling very good about my body. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't like, you know, gaining tons and tons of weight, but it's it's enough that, you know, like you said, you gain a pant size, you just feel, you don't feel yourself. Right, and, you just feel heavy. Yeah. And yeah. like And lethargic. it's one of these things where, you know, I'm always encouraging women to give themselves a break and like don't add insult to injury by like right. talking badly about yourself or thinking, you know, horrible things about yourself when you look in the mirror. You know, I think the, the negative self-talk piece is huge and that mm-hmm. is a stressor, like negative... Uh, thinking or, you know, just negative emotions in general is a stressor to your body that we don't need that on top of other stressors in that's your where, life, right? right. So and Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I feel like yours is more the mental like piece with like all of everything, you know? It is. But yeah. to be fair, like if there's other things in your life that are objectively stressful, that can cause your body to hold on to extra weight. So with the diet, like your diet might be perfectly fine. And to I mean, I don't think, think that- it's like, 100% perfect. Who's is? But <laughs> who's well, ever is 100% perfect? Yeah, so when I say perfectly fine, I don't mean perfect. I just mean, mean that there's not, there's nothing like no red flags. Like, yeah. oh, this is something that's obviously causing you to gain weight. I mean, when you're stressed and there might be some habits that you tend to stress eat, or maybe you're drinking alcohol when you get home because you're trying to relax. And, you know, it can be easy to kind of add up as far as. I mean, we're on a wine and shine podcast, right? Right. So, yeah. Yeah. We had wine on the last one, but we're actually grabbing a glass of wine after this episode. So it almost mm-hmm. counts. Yeah. Right. So, and I'm, I'm. Listen, I enjoy alcohol as well. <laughs> I like to have it, but it is something that if you're coming home from work every day and having half a bottle of wine, that could be something that 
is causing you to hold on to some extra body fat, even if overall your diet is pretty good, right? So there are some little habits that might be affecting just from a dietary perspective. But I also want people to always think about like, what are your sleep habits? Are you going to bed on time? Are you staying up watching TV or or using your phone or anything like that? Are you taking time to de-stress in a way that's not food or or alcohol related. So, you know, doing self-care practices, meditation, prayer, you know, journaling, that kind of thing to help decompress from your day. Also having social interaction, like some people really just are very, what's the word, they get home from work and they're too tired to really do anything. So they just like watch Netflix and then go to bed and then wake up and do the whole thing the Mm -hmm. next day. So they're not putting any effort into community or building relationships, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of different things that affect stress levels. And anything that's triggering a lot of stress in your life could potentially cause your body to hold on to some extra weight that it's not that it's going to hurt you physically to have that weight, but it, it definitely can be discouraging and feel frustrating, especially if you're eating a generally healthy diet. So I definitely empathize. Like I said, I've been there. And for me, I think getting the weight off really came down to having a consistent, appropriate exercise routine. So I do heavy lifting two to three days a week and then walking. And that's pretty much it at this point. I, I think part of the reason I was gaining weight in the past was because I was over-exercising and that was a stressor. Mm-hmm. And then also it just happened to be around the time that I met my, hus- my husband that I just think like I was just in a better mood and I wasn't feeling as emotionally stressed. And I had that social support that I didn't have before because you know, there's a big difference when you're single and living alone versus like even just having... I had a long distance relationship, but I was talking on the phone with him and it just yeah. felt very like uplifting and positive and enjoyable. And I think that really took a lot of stress out of my life. And then also putting more effort into growing my community, which for me has been my church, just really participating in in more than just going to church on Sunday. It was like, you know, taking time out of my week to actually go hang out with my friends and doing small group, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, a lot of it had nothing to do with my diet. And I, I do think a lot of women over-focus on the diet as being something that's triggering their weight changes. But again, you might have a totally fine diet and the diet has nothing to do with it. And it's all the other things that are going on stress-wise that are causing weight gain that's unintentional. And that's the thing is like, I don't want women to put so much emphasis on their physique that if they're a little bit heavier than what they might've been in the past, that they think that that's horrible. Like I've definitely been leaner when I was on the volleyball team. I was like 15 pounds lighter than I am now. So I've been leaner, I've been heavier. And my feeling is like, if I feel pretty good about my habits and how I feel physically and my weight's pretty stable and I can enjoy food, but also mostly eat healthy and and still kind of like just stay pretty stagnant. I feel like that's a lot better than trying to chase an ideal that I might've been in the past. Uh, so I want to put that on a poster. Stick <laughs> it on my wall. Yeah, I I believe that same exact thing. And I also really believe that, like, you know, you were talking about all of the emotional stress that goes on. And a lot of people do hyper-focus on the diet. And it's mm-hmm. not always just the diet. But it seems like when our bodies are calm and our minds are calm, and they can't be like that all of the time, but mm-hmm. for the most part, your body also settles at a place where it feels good. Mm-hmm. And so then, yeah, then you can eat, go out and eat a little bit and, but 
for the most part, eat healthy and everything seems to kind of fall into place. But it's just about trying to get all of the pieces and parts to be somewhat balanced, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, it's also important to remember that what your body's happy weight is may not be what your like (laughs) ideal in your brain weight is. Um, A lot of women struggle with that because really, I mean, women's bodies are not meant to be super low body fat or super skinny, that kind of thing. And yeah, some people are genetically like that. I don't want anyone to think I'm skinny shaming because honestly, if somebody eats healthy and eats enough and isn't restricting food and is at a lower weight, I think that's perfectly fine. But I think a lot of women put this pressure on themselves to look a certain way. And that's like their ideal of what healthy looks like. Mm -hmm. And honestly, being in the health field, it's amazing to me how many people come out with these stories of like, oh, I looked like a bikini model, but I didn't have my period. I yeah. couldn't sleep at night. Like I had no energy. My I was freezing cold all the time. Like they just felt like garbage. But on a picture on Instagram, they look amazing, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think giving ourselves a little bit of grace when it comes to, you know, just figuring out what our body wants to be at with a weight. But also realizing that if we are feeling like our bodies are not feeling healthy, looking at the different factors that can influence that. And it might be something as simple as getting your sleep habits under control. Like if you find that you're getting to bed too late, that your your circadian rhythms are messed up, like that might be something that you spend more time focusing on and just look at your diet and be like, the diet's fine. I'm not really going to do anything. I'm just going to eat good quality food, eat what I want, you know, not stuff myself, but not restrict at all, mm-hmm. just eat in a way that makes me comfortable and focus more on the sleep issue or focus more on uh, stress management, that kind of thing. So I, even though I'm a dietitian, I tend to look at diet as not the most important thing when it comes to health. And I think it's not that hard to get a pretty solid diet and you know not have to be micromanaging it. Mm-hmm. I agree. I love that. Yeah. I also like that it makes me think... Like you can just adjust one thing and have it profoundly impact your quality of life, mm-hmm. which I think for me, being a black and white thinker and kind of having that all or nothing mentality, it's hard because I'm like, I have to manage my sleep and I have to manage my stress and I have to manage my diet and I have to manage like… Just pick one little Yeah, thing. I just need to like pick one to focus on, mm-hmm. get it where I feel like it's good, maybe… I'm the person that's watching Netflix at 11 p.m. So maybe don't do that. Documentaries <laughs> about murder. That's you. Yeah. It's your classic happy bedtime story. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, I mean, I hate to say it, but, and I am like maybe biased because I hate that kind of stuff. Me too. Like, that's why I, I said it because I think it's so funny. I hate that. You know what's funny though? Like everything I watch, I'm a huge news junkie. Like I almost went into political science. Like I love politics. But right now, in general, but right now, it's so stressful. Like every day, there's like some big new thing that's happened. You're like, and I like, can't. But, and I'm like addicted to the news. And it's that, stressful. Yeah, I mean, that's something <laughs> I normally suggest taking a break from that kind of thing. Like See, the world's get... not going to end if you stop watching news for a month. You might feel like that's super ignorant, but honestly, most, I think news is something that these days is not very conducive to good health for most Mm -hmm. people. Like, I don't want you to just like stick your head in the sand and ignore everything that's going on, but you don't need to be caught up on every single thing that's happening. And I'm sure if something's important enough, it'll get to you in some way. So, you know, 
things like that or things like the the type of TV shows that are very stressful, like... They re- this, like produce stress in your body when you watch right, it. Right. You might yeah, not even like, think. I mean, my but, documentary about the murdered nun, is that going to do that? Yes. My favorite. Well, and if you're going to watch that kind of stuff, I would suggest doing it during the day, like on <laughs> no, a week, weekend or something. Yeah, well, because honestly, you might not think it's stressful. Like you might not have that like visceral, like, anxiety response that I have. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because some of the shows I watch, like I'll watch like Westworld or Game of Thrones on HBO or whatever. that stresses me out. It's like too many explosions and things for my eyes to watch. Well, and so (laughs) I only watch those shows like maybe once a week and honestly, half the year they're not even on. So I'm not really watching them. And other than that, I typically don't watch TV. But even on those days that I do watch those shows, I notice a difference between how I sleep on those days. Me too. Hmm. I'm going to bed kind of overstimulated. I have played um, like a movie in my head or I notice my dreams will be really active or like I'm restless just because yeah. my body, I'm more sensitive to like input like that. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I can't do, I have to tell Cody, it's like comedies only. <laughs> like it's like right. comedies before right. bed. Yeah. So it's one of these things where, I mean, if I were you, what I would do is take a month and just do like no media before bed for a month. I love that idea. Do like a book or something, read something interesting. It doesn't have to be like, you know, something super mellow. Like you could read a murder mystery or something, but Mm -hmm. reading something like that is totally different than viewing it because the, your visual system is like, if you're, if you're seeing something get murdered, like you're going to get a fight or flight response, even if you don't notice it. Mm-hmm, right. So I would, I would challenge you to actually spend a month without TV at the end of the day. You're not going to miss anything. The world's going to keep turning. Netflix is still going to be there. You can catch up on the shows later and just see how you feel. See, see what happens after that month. I've had some clients before that did that and they were just shocked how much better they felt during the day. Liz. I was going to say, I feel like you always struggle with how do I reduce my stress? How do I reduce my stress? It's probably an easy way to start. But I was just going to say, that's such a simple one. I might steal it from you. I'm going (laughs) to, I am stealing. I'll say, I learned this from Laura on our podcast. I'll, I'll give you the credit, but seriously, that's amazing for people that find it overwhelming to reduce their stress. I even like, so I start my day by watching like my, the first thing I do every morning is I sit down, I eat my breakfast and I watch all the late night comedy stuff, but it's all news stuff. Yeah. It's like John Oliver. I like start mm-hmm. my day with John Oliver. Mm-hmm. I love. Is it stressful or funny? I mean, it's funny, but it's like, oh my gosh, news is scary and stressful. All right, like, a month break. It's on your to-do. All right. <laughs> I'll give that one a I whirl. mean, like I said, the world's going to keep turning. The stuff's going to be available. It's not like if you don't watch it for a month, you're going to just turn into this ignorant, like, you know, doesn't know anything that's going on kind of person. But I would honestly really try it. Because like you were saying, if it's, if you're like, I don't know how to control my stress because stuff in your life is stressful that you don't have control over, you have to be objective about what you do have control over, right? Like maybe you can't, maybe you can't control everything, but there's probably some stuff that you can. And to, to feel overwhelmed, to feel like I can't do anything about my stress, but then have this thing that's obviously... Probably causing me stress. <laughs> yeah. Or at least at least you don't know, right? Maybe it's right. not obvious, but it's like, okay, that's, that's something that could be causing a problem. Let's take a month to eliminate it and see how you feel. And maybe nothing happens. And then you're like, all right, well, maybe that wasn't that big of a deal. I feel the same. On to the next. 
yeah, you can go back to watching the news and stuff. But I'd say best case scenario, you have an amazing month and you feel like a whole new person because your energy is better. You're sleeping better. You just feel like... I think the feeling heavy thing a lot of times will come from feeling sluggish. Mm-hmm. So you might feel less sluggish and more light and energetic. And you might be like, wow, I didn't even know that watching news at 11 o'clock at night was having this downstream effect. Because mm-hmm. we were saying there's the emotional stress piece. The news is stressful. Generally, it's not you know, not often that you're seeing positive things on the news. And then you're staying up later and getting that circadian rhythm dysfunction because your body is experiencing not only the light from the TV, but also that emotional drama actually is kind of a daytime stimulator for your body. Hmm. Because most, if you think about like, let's just say hundreds of years ago before electricity existed, people could only really do stuff during the day. And then when the night came, like they kind of had to chill out and maybe they had a fire going, but like they weren't they, like, wrote doing anything. They yeah. fight with their little feather pen. Right. <laughs> yeah. they, you know. So they weren't doing anything super active. And that's something that I think a lot of people really struggle with is yeah. as, as the light goes down and as the sun goes down, you're supposed to kind of chill, keep the lights kind of low, do low, low uh, stress things, maybe do some reading, Maybe I think a lot of people feel like that's roommate. their time to shine. It's like, oh, now I'm free. <laughs> like, off work, I mean, I, this is my time to shine. I and- do a lot of like, I also do a lot of working late at night. Like, I'll be like, oh, let me fire up the laptop and do put in a couple hours at like 10 do o'clock at night. Do you have the app or, yeah, the app that changes your computer to orange light instead of blue light? No. Have I not told you about this yet? No. You also can do it on your phone. I'll show you after the recording. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, certainly if you have to work, blocking the blue (laughs) light is really important, but that's another thing. I don't, I mean, I can't, when it comes to work, I'm I'm self-employed. So I have the luxury of working when I want. Now, Mm -hmm. to be fair, sometimes when you're self-employed, you do end up working too much Mm -hmm. and it's easy to start working late at night. But if you have any control over not working at night, I wouldn't do it. Like, I really don't think that that's a good idea health-wise. And even if you just take a couple weeks off of, like I said, if you just do a media a media slash past like media eight o'clock class. at night, mm-hmm. I honestly wouldn't be surprised if that made a really big impact on how you feel. And then once you do that experiment, if you notice that you feel a lot better, then it's a matter of choosing what's important to you. And yeah. if you want to watch the news once a week or something, just to kind of like check in on what's happening in the world, but it's not every single night. Or if you want to try to limit it to watching it in the morning when you're eating and not doing it right before bed, that's where the choices come in. But you'll never know how it's affecting you until you take a break from it. So I think a lot of times people just get into habits Mm -hmm. and they just get used to doing it a certain way and they don't even know that Mm -hmm. what they're doing on a day-to-day basis could actually be triggering a lot of problems in their health. And like I said, I always want people to be objective about what they have control over because like I work with a lot of moms and being a mom is stressful. They're not going to like give their kids away or something. So that's not going to go away. They can do other things like, you know, have the husband watch the kids and they go get coffee with a girlfriend once a week or something. Find like. what you can control. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, and like I said, the circadian rhythm and the, the emotional stress piece is huge. And I would hate for you or anyone that's listening that has this mindset that, oh, I'm gaining weight. Like, let me cut my calories or let me Mm -hmm. add more exercise. But then they're watching TV until midnight, watching something kind of stressful, not sleeping very well, waking up in the morning early. And it's just like, let's be realistic about what's actually harming your health. You're 
your diet sounds fine. You mm-hmm. know, it's one of these things where I don't want you to micromanage your diet and then totally ignore a whole aspect of your health that's actually probably a bigger issue. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. This has been probably the most helpful podcast. I was just going to say, this was amazing. In a long time. I feel like our listeners are going to be like, what? I feel ready Mine's to go home blown. and do nothing. Yeah. Well, we're going to go get a little celebratory drink. Yes. Yeah. Nina is now officially self-employed as of today. I, as of today, I turned oh, in my keys today. Thank you. Welcome to self-employment. Yeah, <laughs> I love it so far, I think. No, one I day it's going to be great. One day in, not even a full day because I did have to go to work today and like turn in my keys and all of that stuff. But yeah, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. And I know our listeners are going to get so much information from the podcast. Yeah, hopefully. I feel like... Uh, we went a little all over the place, but That's I think such typical. is the wine and shine. That's how it works. They love <laughs> they're us. Used to they it. listen to it. Yeah, they're um, used to it. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about where to find you and if they're interested in working with you or learning more about like programs that you offer? I love reading your blogs. Your website is definitely one of my go-to research websites because I know you like do all of the research-based stuff. So I trust everything you write. Oh, that's so nice of you. Thank you. Well, so my little website hub would be laurashoenfeldrd.com. Do you guys have like a website that people will go to for the links? Yeah, Yeah, we have show notes. Okay. So check the show notes since my last name's a little challenging. (laughs) Um, But basically that's my homepage and that's where I'm going to have all my blogs and information about working with me. And I'm hoping kind of in this like transition phase in my business where I'm trying to not change from one-on-one to group coaching, but I also want to offer more of like the low cost, like bigger group kind of program. So kind of keep an eye on that because that might be something I have more of later in the year. But right now, my primary way of working with people is one-on-one. And then I would say as far as social media goes, I really only use Instagram. Like I use Facebook a little bit, but a lot of times that's primarily just repost from Instagram. So I'm kind of like a very... Same on the wine and shine side of things. So I I really like Instagram just because I'm a a visual person. I just, for whatever reason, I think people tend to see the stuff more if it's on Instagram versus Facebook. So my Instagram handle is Laura Schoenfeld RD. And I talk a lot about not only science-based health stuff, but also I talk about um, a lot of the mindset stuff that we were talking talking about a lot of self-love, self-care kind of thing. I am a Christian, so I do cover spiritual aspects of health, that kind of thing. So, but not in a way that's like pushy or, you know, if you're not a Christian, don't feel like you're not welcome as well. It's just, um, I do think that the connection with a higher power really is important for people. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so I cover a lot of topics and my health interests include primarily fitness and matching a healthy diet to exercise. And then also the gut and hormone health that a lot of women tend to have issues with. So yeah, I'd say the blog and Instagram is where you're going to find most of my content. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us. And thank you. A huge thank you to Laura again for that like mini coaching session at the end and just for sharing so much knowledge with us today. I am wishing you all a stress-free, happy day, 
And I will let everyone know how the media cleanse goes for me. I'm sure it will be helpful. But you can check us out. As always, we love to connect with you. We love to hear from you. We love to get guest suggestions for you. If you want to go to our Instagram, that is at Wine and Shine Podcast. We also have the Facebook group, The Wine and Shiners. You can also find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Wine and Shine Podcast if you'd like to financially support the podcast in any way. And yeah, subscribe, review, let your friends know about Wine and Shine, and we will We'll catch you next week on another episode of the show.